0: You are now listening to the July 11th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings.
1: Hello heart and soul listeners, this is Brian Winston from Story of Kings. Today, we are going to share stories from 2 Samuel chapter 16 verse 20 to chapter 19 verse 8. The next chapter in Absalom's rebellion opens with Absalom in Jerusalem, conferring with Ahithophel his counsel. After entering Jerusalem, Absalom considered what he should do first as king of Israel and inquired of Ahithophel. Ahithophel responded by suggesting to Absalom to lay with the concubines his father had left. This was a shrewd suggestion to get Absalom to commit an irrevocable act, publicly declaring his ascension to kingship. Reading from 2 Samuel 16, verse 21, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. Following Ahithophel's instructions, Absalom went to bed with his father David's concubines. This was in fulfillment of what God had said through prophet Nathan regarding the incident involving Bathsheba. According to Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 11, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Emboldened, Absalom called in his people to devise a plan to go after his father David. Ahithophel again stepped forward and urged Absalom to mobilize immediately and attack David to finish him off. Ahithophel said he would lead the troop. If Absalom were to give him 12,000 men, he would pursue David that night to strike him while he and his troops were still weary and exhausted from traveling. Again, this would have been a shrewd military maneuvering. All the elders of Israel agreed with Ahithophel's suggestion. But for some reason, Absalom turned to inquire additional advice from Hashai, David's friend. Hashai knew David needed more time to get away. He sensed an urgent need to thwart Ahithophel's counsel. He put forward an opposing plan. His intent was to give David and his fighting men an opportunity to move further away and recover from traveling. This is how he presented his argument. He reminded Absalom how David and his soldiers were very experienced and brave. They would be ready for an attack, so attacking them now could be like walking into a trap and would mean certain defeat. Therefore, Hashai suggested it would be better to first gather more troops from the rest of Israel build a unified and stronger army, and then attack them. Absalom and his people then thought Hashai's suggestion was better than the one given by Ahithophel and decided to follow Hashai's counsel. Well, that was a close call for David and his troops. Seeing he successfully frustrated Ahithophel's plan, Hashai immediately went to priests Zadok and Abiatar, he told him to send a message to David and tell him to cross the Jordan River now and go into the wilderness. Zadok and Abiatar sent the message through Jonathan and Ahimeaz and David led his people across the Jordan River. They went as far as Mahanaim. Once David reached Mahanaim, he found some friendly faces. Shobi from Ammon, Machir from Lodibur, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, came to see him. They brought abundant supply of food and beddings for David and his men. After a long and arduous journey, they were finally able to take a breather. They rested and ate, all the while putting things in order to get ready for the impending battle against Absalom and his troops. David set his base camp in Maanaum, and Absalom set his in Gilead. The final battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. Though Absalom had larger numbers of soldiers, they did not have the skills and experience to go against David's army with organized battle strategies. 20,000 of Absalom's soldiers were slaughtered in the forest of Ephraim, and Absalom was pressed to run for his life. While he was fleeing on a donkey, his long hair got caught in an oak tree, and the donkey continued to run forward, so he was left hanging there on the tree. One of David's soldiers saw this, and he reported it to Joab. Joab took three spears and thrusted them through Absalom's heart. Absalom died there. Then Joab blew the trumpet of victory and David's soldiers stopped pursuing the opposition forces. They threw Absalom's body in a deep pit and piled over a heap of stones. In the meantime, David was waiting back at Maanaim for the news from the battlefield. David did not go into the battlefield himself because his people were concerned for his safety. He was waiting at the gate, and he finally heard the message from a soldier that Absalom's army was defeated. David asked about Absalom. Though Absalom had committed treason, David did not want his son to die. But when he heard the news of Absalom's death from the second soldier, his heart broke. He went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. David's weeping over the death of his son got back to those in the battlefield. Even though they scored a huge victory for their king, Joab and his soldiers were downcast, and the victory that day turned to mourning for all people. Of course, as the general that led the troops, Joab was not happy about this. He went to see David and confronted him. In 2 Samuel chapter 19 verses five through seven, Joab came into the house of the king and said, "Today, You have covered with shame the faces of all your servants who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, Then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass the night with you. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. With that, David came to his senses. He recomposed, welcomed and greeted his soldiers, he pulled himself together and began to execute his duties as a king again. We can only imagine how torn David must have been that day. Upon Absalom's death, he was reminded of his sin involving Uriah's wife and God's prophecy that the sword would never leave his house. His heart ached for his son, yet no one around him understood his deep sorrow. As a father... He must have felt as if his son's death was due to his own sin. Yet he had to look after his troops and carry out his kingly duties. We'll continue next time from Story of Kings. Goodbye.
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is womanhood. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David.
2: Let's hear from God's Word. We'll start in the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. This is the getting near the end of the creation account. Sixth day, verse 26. This is God's Word. God said, Let us make man in our image And over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, let's stop there. Stop number one on this tour of womanhood through scripture. Hear God's word saying to every woman in the world, you are dignified and distinguished. Honored and majestic according to the design of God. And from the very beginning of this truth, even the language here, I want to make it clear. I want to... Start cutting through the lies of this world. So to every woman in the world, you are dignified, but your dignity is not dependent on your physical appearance. And your dignity is not dependent on your career. And your dignity is not dependent on your marital status. Your dignity is not dependent on any man or anyone's opinion. No, to every woman in the world, your dignity has been given to you by God himself. You are created in the image of God. Like God, in the sense that you resemble him. You have moral, intellectual, relational capacities like God, your desire to love and care, your ability to speak and work, your capacity to forgive and encourage, all of these things in you resemble and represent the God in whose image you have been made. Now, one might say the same thing could be said about man, and that's kind of the point. Men and women are both created in the image of God. So from the very beginning of the Bible, God in his word is speaking directly against any kind of male or female superiority or dominance. Which means in any culture, in any country, in a world where all kinds of cultures and countries are filled like this, in any relationship where a man is thought to be better than woman, or a woman thought to be better than man, in any culture, any relationship, where a man or woman is treated as inferior, as an object to be used or abused or controlled, then we are going directly against the design of God. It is not, it is never right to disparage or belittle women or men, sexual inferiority or superiority, misogyny, male dominance, female exploitation, all of these things are sinful violations of God's word and there is no place for them anywhere in the world. Men and women possess equal dignity before God and are equally distinguished by God. So God did not create gender-neutral people. He created man and woman, both distinguished by unique God-given dignity. And this is so important in a culture where feminism is oftentimes equated with downplaying, defaming, disparaging, or outright denying this God-designed distinction. So much of the message in contemporary feminism is that there is nothing uniquely wonderful about being a woman when the Bible says there is. And this is so important in a culture where various women are tempted to think, I wish I was a man. Various men tend to think, I wish I was a woman. I long for you to see that God has created you as a woman or as a man with Dignity and divine distinction that you can rejoice and rest in. Don't believe the lies of this world. God created you good. Very good, actually, in Genesis 131. You were created physically different, yet equally dignified. So to every woman in this room and other campuses, hear the word of God to you. You are wonderfully and beautifully formed by God himself in his very image. And even as I use that word beautifully, don't let your mind immediately wander to the world's definition of beauty. You look in Proverbs 31, at the picture of biblical womanhood there, you won't see hardly any mention of that woman's physical appearance. The one thing that our culture seems to exalt above all else. Our culture is screaming in thousands of ways. Businesses are spending billions of dollars. Entertainment industries are spending countless hours to convince women that their need for esteem, fulfillment, and significance is found in looking a certain way. And the word of God in Proverbs thirty-one thirty resounds across our culture. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. A woman who knows she resembles God and represents God with distinguished dignity. To every woman in the world, you are dignified and distinguished. Which leads to the second stop on our tour, one chapter later in Genesis two, where God's word says to every wife in the world. You are an invaluable treasure. Read with me starting in Genesis 2 verse 18. So the very next chapter the Lord God said, it is not good, verse 18, that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. We read verse 18 because up until that verse, it's interesting, everything in the Bible was good. We see that thing resounding over and over again. In Genesis one and two, God saw all that he created, it was good, it was good. Until you get to verse 18 of chapter two and the God says, it's not good. What's not good? What's not good is that the man is alone. According to God, man needs woman and woman needs man. This is where we learn from the beginning of the Bible that men and women are created to complement one another. Going back to the distinguished reality we've already discussed, we realize in Genesis 2 that men and women are distinct for a reason. And that distinction is more than just a difference in physical anatomy. This is not... Evolutionary accident here. This is not biological triviality. This is God creating man to need woman and woman to need man in many ways and specifically marriage. Now, I trust we realize we're going totally against the grain of the way our country defines marriage right now, but according to the Bible, we do not have the right to redefine what God has defined from the very beginning. And He's defined it that way, follow this, for a reason for a reason. The Bible teaches that in the beginning, when God made man, then woman, he wasn't just rolling the dice, being creative, flipping a coin, and then brought them together in a relationship called marriage. God had a purpose here. He was painting a picture, a purpose and a picture that would be fully revealed when Jesus came, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave in victory over death and instituted the church. At which point the Bible says in Ephesians five, quotes what we just read at the end of Genesis two, verse 24 about man and woman coming together in marriage and then says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Oh, don't miss this. In the design and definition of marriage, God is painting a picture. In marriage, God is purposing to illustrate his love for people. God designs marriage in such a way that in a husband's sacrificial love for his wife, the world will see a picture of Christ's sacrificial love for the church and a wife's respect for her husband. The world sees a picture of the church's reverence for Christ. Now there's a ton we could talk about here, but for now just think about how this revelation stunned men and women in the first century and how it shouts to men and women in the 21st century in cultures that are prone to devalue women and specifically wives, the Bible says no. Husbands, do you see how Jesus treats his church? How he loved her? served her, ultimately sacrificed, laid down his life for her, you love and serve and sacrifice and lay down your life for your wife like that. To every wife in the world, you are an invaluable treasure in marriage, apart from whom marriage is not possible and in whom marriage is a powerful picture of the gospel. So contrary to what our world says, You are not optional in marriage. You are invaluable in marriage. And contrary to far too much contemporary practice, you are not trivial in marriage to be treated lightly. You are a treasure in marriage to be cherished deeply. To every wife in the world, you are an invaluable treasure. Which then leads to the third stop on our tour. For part of the purpose of marriage is the multiplication of more people made in the image of God. That was the first command given to man and woman in marriage. We read it in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So hear this word from God. To mothers and grandmothers, God is using your life in ways you cannot imagine. To mothers and grandmothers, God is using your life in ways you cannot imagine cannot imagine. Biblically, we can literally go from page to page from this point. Seeing mothers like Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, Naomi, and Ruth, the mother in Proverbs 31, whose children rise up and call her blessed, Elizabeth, the mother of John, Mary, the mother of Jesus. But I want to draw your attention to two lesser known women who are only mentioned once in the Bible in 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'll put it up here on the screen. You might write it down. In this letter to Timothy, a man who played a huge part in the spread of the gospel, the planting of the church in the first century, Paul writes these words in verse five. I am reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. That's interesting. We know from Acts chapter 16 that Timothy's dad was Greek and likely not a believer, yet Timothy had sincere faith in Christ. How? And Paul is acknowledging here, how Timothy's sincere, authentic faith in God had been modeled and passed down to him by a mother and a grandmother in a home, day after day, month after month, year after year, in that home in a way that was now reverberating through the church around the world. So mothers and grandmothers, hear this word. God is using your life in your home in ways that reverberate far beyond your home. And much like everything else we're seeing in God's word today, this too is being undercut, undervalued, even contradicted in our culture. Now obviously I wanna be clear, the Bible doesn't say whether or not a mother should work outside the home. Various moms do, various moms don't. The Bible doesn't speak specifically to that, but the Bible does say that we should absolutely value a mother's work inside the home. And we live in a day where even the idea of just being a mom or prioritizing all that mothering involves is actually seen by some as second class or even a waste of someone's life. And I hope we realize that that kind of thinking is not only biblically wrong, but it is practically absurd. Few things are more important in this world than the formation of children which is the foundation upon which so much of this world is built. Being a mother, a grandmother, is in no way second class or a waste. It is a wonderful calling to build the next generation. This is not intellectually restraining. This is the highest teaching and training that exists in the world. This is not a limitation of a woman's gifts. This is the application of those gifts in ways that lead to the multiplication of good for children and all they will do in the world one day in ways that will carry on long after you have gone. I have yet to meet a grandmother or mother who has regretted pouring her life into her children. I have yet to meet a child who wishes his or her mother or grandmother would not have raised him or her in love. I guarantee you Lois and Eunice did not regret pouring their faith into their son and grandson. I guarantee you they also had no idea how he would become one of the greatest leaders in the history of the church. So to mothers and grandmothers, hear God saying that he is using your life in ways you cannot imagine. So press on and persevere. Amidst the long days and even the longer nights. Amidst the delightful days and the dark, hard, difficult days. Trusting that your love for your children and your grandchildren is never, ever in vain. And be encouraged, by the way, here's single moms. Or moms whose husbands are not followers of Christ. Notice how Timothy's dad is not even mentioned here. So even when you were doing this task alone. Or especially when you are doing this task alone, know that God himself is your ever-present help. And when you feel like you're falling short, know that God promises to sustain you, to strengthen you, to uphold you with his right hand, to use your life in ways that you can't see in the day-to-day struggle. That leads us to this next affirmation. Knowing that not every woman and not every mom is a wife. So hear God's word to singles. Your marital status does not make you incomplete. Your marital status does not make you incomplete. There's so much here we could discuss about singleness. And we need to discuss as the church in our culture. Just a little context. 100 years ago, more than 90% of the adult population in our country was married. Most people married young, divorce was uncommon, even widows often remarried quickly for the most part. Being an adult was synonymous with being married. Singleness was rare. Today, almost half of the adult population in our country is unmarried. Nearly half of the adults have either never married or are now widowed or separated or divorced. People are staying single longer than ever before. As a result, single adults are almost as common as married adults today. So what are we to think about this? Is this a good thing, is this a bad thing? How does the Bible speak to this? Hopefully better than we in the church have spoken to singleness. You look in Christian bookstores, you find a plethora of books on marriage and parenting, compare with a small number of books on singleness, and you compare the content, it's very interesting, You see, very few marriage books argue that marriage is a good thing. That's kind of accepted. Instead, they just talk about the problems in marriage and how to deal with those problems. So Christian marriage books tell you how to deal with the difficulty of marriage. On the other hand, books on singleness take a different approach. They often imply that singleness is a problem. They tell a single how to make the most of the time until the right person finally comes along. In other words, they say the solution to the problem of singleness is marriage. There's gotta be a better answer than this. <laughs> and the Bible gives it. The Bible gives it in pictures all throughout scripture of men and women for whom singleness is not a problem but a blessing. At the top of the list of single men would be Jesus, <laughs> John the Baptist, Paul. List of single women includes names like Mary and Martha, Miriam and Lydia. And the reason we need to stop here on our tour through Womanhood of Scripture is because some single women might be tempted to think on Mother's Day that because you are not a mother or because you are not married, then you are not fulfilling God's design in some way. Some might even say that you need a a husband to complete you when the Bible does not say that. And that's why I word this affirmation this way. Yes, the Bible, as we've seen, gives a glorious picture of wives and moms, but the Bible also tells us that in Christ, we are complete regardless of our marital status. Galatians three and four, singleness is called a gift in 1 Corinthians seven to be maximized for God's glory as long as God gives that gift. In Matthew 19, 10 through 12, Jesus says it is good. It's good to be single for the sake of the kingdom and God in his word calls himself the all-sufficient, all-satisfying husband to his people. Isaiah 54, 5, your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. So single women know that according to God in Christ, you are absolutely complete. And I would take it a step further. Let me take this one step further because as one of your pastors, I know that church life can often seem focused on families and couples, but. Please don't let your singleness tempt you to believe that you don't have a meaningful place in our church family. Based on 1 Corinthians 7, I would say that our church family is incomplete without you. God is using you in unique ways that portray the gospel that must not be underestimated or squandered, which is why I pastorally would also encourage you never to let longing for marriage and physical family tempts you to take matters into your own hands in a way that you walk outside of God's good design. We want to be a family of faith that supports and serves alongside you in all the good ways God has designed as long as he grants you what he calls in 1 Corinthians 7 a gift in singleness. So much we could say more here. We'll dive into more in the days ahead, but singles, just hear from God's word that your marital status does not make you incomplete. And then God's word says to the widow, God is your never failing, always faithful provider. And I just want to remind you from God's word that God has promised to be your never failing, always faithful provider. God has given clear, continual, and comprehensive instructions in his word for your care. All throughout the Old Testament, God gives clear commands to his people to provide for the widow. Those commands powerfully depicted in the story of Ruth and Naomi, two widows whose story testifies to God's faithful provision. Then you get to the New Testament, 1 Timothy 5, God commands the church to honor widows in very concrete ways. The book of James, God says true religion looks after widows. God calls himself the protector of widows in Psalm 68, 5, the one who upholds the widow in Psalm 146, 9, and the one in whom the widow can trust in Jeremiah 49, 11. Hear God reminding you right where you're sitting, that he is your never failing, always faithful provider. A few final stops on our tour of womanhood through scripture. One, to those who are hurting, to those who are hurting in all kinds of different ways, God sees your sorrow and hears your cries. You know, what's interesting. As far as I can tell in all of ancient Near Eastern literature Not just the Bible, but broader than that. There's only one woman whom deity addresses directly by name. It's in the Bible, but it's not one of the great matriarchs in the Old Testament. Instead, it's a woman named Hagar. Basically a slave who had been harshly treated. She flees finds herself alone in a wilderness in Genesis 16 where God comes to her and calls her name and then listen to her response in Genesis 16:13. she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her this is what she called God you're a God of seeing for she said truly here I have seen him who looks after me then later, at another wilderness moment, alone with her baby boy who is about to die, God speaks to her again, saying in Genesis twenty-one seventeen, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. I can only imagine that there are who are hurting in a variety of different ways. Some feel belittled. Others feel broken. Some feel abandoned. Others feel alone, even in a big crowd, you feel alone. Some wonder if God sees your sorrow or hears your cries. And if that's true, I want you to hear him saying in his word that absolutely he does. I was in Psalm 56 in my Bible reading this week. I read in verse eight, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. I thought God counts my tossings in the night. Not one of them is unknown to him. God knows every single tear you've shed. And he doesn't just see and hear. He promises to help and uphold you in the midst of your hurt, especially when you've been hurt by others' sin against you. In the middle of hurting, God sees your sorrow and hears your cry. And even when there's hurt from your sin against him, so follow this. Next stop on the tour, God's word says to those who are struggling with sin and guilt, God forgives you by faith. (laughs) For so those struggling with sin and guilt, God forgives you by faith. Do you ever feel like you're failing as a mom, as a wife, as a woman in this way or that way? Do you ever feel like you can't measure up to whatever standard you have in your mind? Maybe you look on Facebook and you see all these people who seem to have it all together. At least that's what you, they want you to think. And you start to think, I just can't keep up. And you think of this area or that area where you're falling short. And before long, you're weighed down either by sin or just a low-level silt sense of guilt that you can't seem to shake. And there's all kinds of places I could go to in Scripture here. But one woman who immediately comes to my mind is Rahab. The woman who is known for her faith in the Bible as an example of faith. This woman whose name is listed in the family lineage of Jesus. Yet we remember that Rahab's profession at one point was a prostitute. You didn't want to be Rahab when you looked at her Facebook profile. And the same could be said about a variety of women in scripture. Think the woman caught in adultery about to be stoned or Eve from the very beginning of the Bible how many people wanted to be her friend. So this is a book where from Genesis 3 on, we see sin in women and we see love in God. Sin in women, love in God over and over and over again. And this is the great news. So no woman or man, you, we all deserve separation from God forever. But the good news of the Bible is that God on high loves you. No matter what could be included on your Facebook profile, including the secrets you would never want anyone else in this world to know, God knows it all and God loves you. And God on high has made a way for you to be forgiven of all your sin and free from all your guilt. God has sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for your sin, to rise from the grave in victory over death. And God has not given you, hear this, he, God has not given you a list of things to do to earn his love. God has not called you to measure up. God has called you to trust, believe in the one who measures up for you and to trust in his love and lordship over your life. If you have never called out for God to save you from your sin and guilt, if you have never put your faith in him as Lord, then I invite you, I urge you do that today. Right where you're sitting, right now, even to say in your heart, yes, I return, I repent, Turn away from my sin. I trust in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And to all those struggling with sin and guilt, look to God and you are forgiven. Completely forgiven by faith. And know this, Christian sister, especially in those moments when you are reminded that you're not perfect, when your sin rears its head in any number of different ways, and your thoughts, or your desires, or your words, or your actions, remember, don't forget that Jesus has paid the price for all of it. And you stand before God, righteous, forgiven by faith. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That is the greatest news any one of us could hear. (sighs) Leads us to these last two stops. To those facing the impossible, God is your strength. Are there any women who feel like they can't do it all? Who feel like marriage, motherhood, singleness, career, too hard to carry? Are there any women who feel like life in a world of sin and suffering is sometimes too much to handle. So hear God's word to probably the most prominent woman in the entire Bible, Mary, as she considered a task for which she did not feel worthy and in which she did not see a way for it to happen. God said to her in Luke one thirty-seven: for nothing will be impossible with God. In other words, God said, Mary, That to which I call you, I promise to empower you. And Mary responds in verse 38, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So if I could, I would like to share some bad news with women all across this church. So here it is. On your own, you cannot do that which God has called you to do. You cannot be the single woman God has called you to be. You cannot be the wife God has called you to be. You cannot be the mom God has called you to be you cannot be the woman God has called you to be but here's the good news God has not called you to do any of these things alone that to which he has called you he promises to empower you what you have on your plate it seems overwhelming That to which God calls you, he promises to empower you. So to any woman who feels overwhelmed right now, be overcome by this reality. The God of the universe is your strength. Based on that reality, to every sister in Christ, do not underestimate your role in making the gospel and glory of God known in the world around you. Ah, i wish we had time at this point to do a whole another survey of all the women whom god used in the bible for the display of his goodness and glory in the world i think abigail the wife of a wicked man yet her wisdom and generosity saved her family from death deborah who brought about victory for god's people in the time of the judges ruth who shows the power of redemption through her loyalty and love esther risked her life to save the jewish people from total extermination then in the new Testament. I don't think people today realize how radical Jesus and Christianity was regarding women in the first century with implications for the 21st century. In ancient Greece, a respectable woman couldn't even leave the house unless she was accompanied by a man. A wife couldn't eat or interact with males. Women had the social status of slaves. Ancient Rome wasn't much different. A husband had the power of life and death over his wife. He could divorce her if she went out in public without a veil over her face. Sadly, I trust we realize there are many places in the world, even right around us here, where this is a reality for women. And into this kind of culture, Jesus steps on the scene and raises the status of women to entirely new heights. He totally redefines the dignity of women through his interactions with them in a way that redefines the dignity of women around the world today. In his interactions with Mary and Martha, a Samaritan woman at the well, and scores of other women, Jesus contradicts anti-female culture. He sets the standard for the church to follow, which is why we see Lydia, Phoebe, Priscilla, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Euodia, countless other unnamed women whose lives were instruments in God's hands for the spread of the gospel and glory of God in the Bible. So sister in Christ, see and hear how God has uniquely and wonderfully designed your life for his glory in the world. Do not underestimate for a second your role in making the gospel and glory of God known. In the world around you, see a biblical survey of beautiful womanhood according to God's design. And please, I urge you, please, don't believe the lies of this world. And don't believe distortions of the Bible. Your womanhood is a prize to be praised. So fear God. Trust his word over the words of this world. Follow his ways over the ways of this world. And spend your life as a woman for the spread of God's worship in the world. So here's, here's how I want to close. I, I want us to pray a, specifically, the word is beckoning us to pray specifically for women as a picture of us praying for you, just lifting you up before the Lord. Would you stand where you are? And we want to pray for you and just with you standing, this to be a picture of us saying, we are interceding for you. We are lifting you up before the Lord as, as we praise you as we praise God for his goodness in you let's bow our heads and let's go before our father in heaven oh god we praise you for these women we praise you for the way you have formed them in your image created them for your glory as a display of your goodness and we praise you for your grace in them the distinguished dignity you have given to them the invaluable treasures that they are, and we pray right now for your blessings on them. God, we pray that amidst all the lies of this world, God, that the goodness and beauty of your truth would saturate their hearts and minds, that they would know who they are according to your word, that they would rest in you, That they would find total freedom and joy and peace, confidence and hope, love and all their hearts long for in you, Lord Jesus, in relationship with you. And then, oh God, that as instruments in your hands, that you would bless them in such a way that your glory would spread through them with the unique God-given dignity you have entrusted to them. God, we pray that McLean Bible Church would be a family of faith where women are thriving in the midst of all kinds of different circumstances from single to married to moms to grandmothers, widows, those struggling to have children biologically, all these things we've looked at amidst the hurts and pains of this world, amidst the weaknesses that we all have God we pray for your blessings on the women in this church that you would shower your grace upon them in every way that all these words we've just heard from your word would soak deeply into their hearts like water and desert and we pray that you would help us to be salt and light in a world around us where there is so much confusion about the goodness of your word and your design for us. We love you, God. We praise you for these women. In Jesus' name.
0: For those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their life, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999. And the email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is praying for the next generation.
3: Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program, Praying for the Next Generation. When you hear the word justice, what comes to your mind? We serve a God of justice who renders His verdicts and judges all with righteousness. Psalm 89 verses 11 and 14 says, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. The Hebrew word for justice is mishpat, which means judgment, justice, ordinance, right, rectitude, proper, and fitting. My brothers and sisters, Do you view slavery as an injustice? If I tell you that slavery exists in our modern world, would you believe it? Unfortunately, it does. It's called human trafficking. In fact, the sex industry has rapidly expanded over the last several decades. According to Polaris Project, in 2018, The United States, along with Mexico and the Philippines, was ranked one of the world's worst places for trafficking. And every state in the U.S. has reports of human trafficking. According to the Women's Center, it is estimated that between 18,000 and 20,000 victims are trafficked into our nation every year. The traffickers not only target women, but often children under the age of 18, and they are more vulnerable than adults. In 2018, over half of the criminal human trafficking cases active in the U.S. involved only children. According to the U.S. Department of Health, more than 300,000 young people in the U.S. are considered at risk of sexual exploitation. The traffickers recruit them by threat or force and false promises. According to the Global Slavery Index, victims often work in the sex, hospitality, beauty, or agricultural industries. They often experience sexual and physiological abuse, torture, starvation, imprisonment, and coercion. Recently, I had a phone conversation with a beautiful woman of God who understood this abysmal pain of abuse and victimization. She was emotional with overflowing gratitude as she shared how Jesus saved her and delivered her from years of complex trauma and deep darkness. She is now happily married to a godly man with three beautiful children who love the Lord. Her life is a testimony of the power and beauty of God's redemption. My brothers and sisters, can we hear the cries of children suffering, of those who have been victimized unjustly, and pray for them in faith that our mighty God will save and deliver them to give them new lives? Let's pray. Lord of justice, you live and reign forever. The heavens declare your divine justice. You will issue your decrees of judgment, deciding what is right for the entire world, dispensing justice to all. You are God who gives justice to the defenseless, oppressed, and voiceless. God, please forgive your church for being silent, passive, and ignorant of the great injustice and evil crime of human trafficking. Father, we cry out for the children who have been unjustly victimized in human trafficking. Save their crushed spirits, and heal their shattered hearts and minds. In your powerful name, set them free from every effect of abuse, trauma, and post-traumatic stress disorder, hopelessness, despair, emotional deadness, and the desire to commit suicide. Deliver them from being tormented emotionally, mentally, and physically. Jesus open their eyes to their true condition so they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to your infinite power. Bless them to experience your gift of redemption through your precious blood, which forgives all their sins, purifies them from wickedness, frees them from the defilement and guilt of their sins, and makes them righteous and holy in your sight. Lord, restore the eyes of their hearts with your light and your living word so they can learn to trust and receive your love and begin to see themselves and their world through your truth. Unite them with their parents and surround them with godly counselors and church families who will accept and love them with your compassion. Counsel them with your wisdom instill true value and significance in their minds, inspire them to dream of a bright future and discover their life's passion and true purpose. Pour out your wisdom and insight on our authorities so they can successfully implement federal anti-trafficking laws by preventing and reducing the rate of human trafficking. Protecting victims and prosecuting traffickers in order to end human trafficking and every form of modern day slavery. May the darkness and evil schemes of the highest authorities of the sex industry be exposed and brought to justice by our Lord Jesus Christ. In your holy name we pray, Amen.